Could you turn in your Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 1? If you have a pew Bible, you'll find it in page 1807, 1807. Colossians 1, we'll read from verse 13 through to verse 23. So looking up that portion of Scripture, remember the service this afternoon starts at 4 o'clock. And then again tomorrow, um, it will be 10.45 through to about half 11. So this is the Word of God found in Paul's letter to the Colossians chapter 1. Verse 13, he that is God the Father, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conferred us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated, And enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Amen. We turn now to the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. It's page number 1069. If you have a pew Bible. Ninth chapter of Isaiah. Read the first several verses. Isaiah 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Sebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her. But by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden 
and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The seal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Amen. Just let's bow in a moment's prayer. Lord, as we come to your word, we have to bow and acknowledge our need of you. So we come humbly to you, knowing that you are the living God. Thanking you for your living word, even the Bible, which we have been reading here this morning. We pray that the work of the Holy Spirit, whom you have sent into the world to convict and to convince of sin and judgment to come, will indeed so minister in our midst. Lord, you're the one and the one alone who can speak with a voice that can awaken the dead. You alone can arrest our consciences and cause us to listen to what you would say to us through your, uh, your word this morning. And so we pray that you would take that which is off yourself and uh, introduce it to us, bring it to us as we think about uh, these things, particularly uh, with respect to the Incarnation. Uh, we pray that you would help us to think upon these things in a way that is rational and life-changing, indeed uh, eternity-changing, because only you can accomplish this. And it's to you and you alone, the living God, that we look. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, here are uh, some headlines uh, from around the world in the past week. Monday, December the 18th. Earthquake rattles western China, killing more than 100 people. Tuesday, December the 19th. Why Hezbollah and Israel haven't plunged into all-out war. Wednesday, December the 20th. Voting for president in Congo begins as fears persist over safety. Also on Wednesday, following an 18-day trial at Manchester Crown Court, a 16-year-old boy and a 16-year-old girl were found guilty of killing a boy who dressed and acted as a girl. Now that is my comment on the headline. That wasn't in the headline itself. But you'll be familiar with the tragic circumstances. And you may have seen the pitiful videos 
of that young girl, of that young boy dressed as a, a girl, with all the over-dramatized um, actions of what he thought a girl does, and thereby making him uh, a girl. So, so pitiful. 21st of December, this came through in the afternoon on Thursday. Prague police say several dead in university shooting. Gunman eliminated. Uh, we know that there are 14 dead. Upwards of what, 24, 25 injured as a result of the shooting in the university. Friday the 22nd, woman charged with murdering four-year-old son in East London. Yesterday, 23rd of December, anger in remote parts of Indian-controlled Kashmir after three are killed while in army custody. And as of 7 o'clock this morning, UK to send warship to Guyana amid Venezuelan tensions. And just a routine week in planet Earth. Allowing us to conclude that the Bible is very, very accurate when it lets us know that the world today knows no settled peace. Beloved, not a lot has changed since the time of Isaiah's prophecy, which we have just uh, read from. And yet it's there in verse 5 that Isaiah says that he anticipates a day when every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used of burning and fuel for the fire. You see, friends, from the context of war and oppression, Isaiah focuses on the coming Messiah. And he says all the bits and the pieces of war, all the machinery of war, will eventually be irrelevant. They will be rolled up and they will be put away forever. And then he tells us why this will happen. And friends, it's an amazing statement. He says, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. In other words, the answer to everything that is going on and will go on is directly tied to the birth of a baby. And not just any baby. But this particular baby, the baby who is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now the name that we turn to this morning, we turn our attention to uh, the name Prince of Peace. In fact, if we summarize what Isaiah provides us with in these verses, it's simply this. Isaiah says a child is born. That child is the prince of peace. And if we would have peace, it is to that child we must go. A child is born. He is the prince of peace. And there is no peace except that which is found in him. It's a staggering claim, isn't it? 
Staggering claim when you think about it. The answer to the dilemma of man. That the issues of our enmity and our alienation with God. And indeed with one another. Are found in the birth of the baby whom we have been singing about this morning. God becoming incarnate. Now perhaps of all the names that we have considered thus far in this little series. This name, Prince of Peace, is probably the one that would resonate most with people on the street. Isn't there a desire for peace among the nations? What would you say? Yeah. And isn't there more and isn't that more than matched by a sincere desire to live at peace with each other? Now, I don't think anyone would agree, uh, would disagree. None of you would disagree. Even the man in the street, I don't think, would disagree uh, that war is ugly. Uh, War, enmity, it's distasteful. It's not nice. It's not enjoyable. And just bringing it down to the very basic level. Nobody likes being a bad in a nobody likes being in a bad mood and aggravating everybody for the entire day. Now that may hit a little too close to home for some of us who are enjoying the Christmas celebrations with family around. But the fact is, we know the importance of harmony amongst one another because we know that darkening, deadening effect of disharmony. So we see the wisdom of knowing uh, the absolute necessity of peace within ourselves. In fact, the appearance of tranquility on the outside may simply disguise the raging torment that is going on within us. Because strife and disharmony and futility and decay are undeniably part of the fabric of our lives. It's not nice to observe, but it's certainly honest to acknowledge it. And it's equally honest to acknowledge that despite man's ability to accumulate stuff, despite his advancement in knowledge, the sense of frustration and alienation which men and women feel and experience is not cured by a you know, shopping trip to Liverpool 1 or the Trafford Centre. It's not a- a- alleviated by entertainment. It's not answer- answered by a degree in IT or computer science or psychology or any other ology. Now, you, you don't have to read, you know, big books to figure that out. It comes to us in all kinds of ways. It comes to us on the, in the monologues and of the wits and sages of the age in their uh, Twitter feeds. It's not Twitter anymore, is it? No. 
Acts. See? And there's the folks that are on the ball. It's, yeah, it's not Acts, Twitter or something, isn't it? Or whatever. But it comes through in their, in their feeds, doesn't it? This is what one astute writer said somewhat humorously, and I, I would say truthfully. We have cleaned up the air, but polluted the soul. We have conquered the autumn, but not our prejudice. We write more, but learn less. We plan more, but accomplish less. These are the times of fast foods and slow digestion, big men, small character, steep profits and shallow relationships, the days of two incomes but more to force, fancier houses but broken homes. The days of quick trips, disposable nappies, throwaway morality, one night stands, overweight bodies, and pills that do everything from cheer to quiet kill. It's a time when there is much in the showroom, but nothing in the stockroom. A time when technology can bring this message to you and a time when you can choose either to share this insight or to, or to just hit delete. Now, what you make of that is maybe a topic for further discussion around the, uh, the, the dinner table. You can, either, you can discuss it or just hit delete. It's just an observation uh, of what each of us, if we are honest, has to face up to in the turmoil and the restlessness of the war-torn mid-twenties of the 21st century. You know um, Solomon, the preacher, as he's called in the book of Ecclesiastes. He writes this uh, fascinating book right in the, the midst of our Bibles. And he describes his own tortured search for peace and contentment. And he's honest enough to say that as he conducted his search, he was doing so without any reference to God. So he tries to unscramble the riddle of life by simply looking at it as he tells us under the sun and leaving God out of the picture. And he took what was here and what was now and what was available and he said, now perhaps I can find some peace. I will be able to find some peace in these things. And if you read it for yourselves, you will discover that without God, wisdom left him frustrated and restless. Work made him tired and angry. Leisure caused him pain. And the accumulation of stuff just made him sick and sad. You know, Solomon in Ecclesiastes, he was trying to live the dream ever before anybody ever thought about a dream you know, to live. And he tells us that as he tried to live the dream without God, it was a dead-end street. And nobody listened then, and nobody's listening today. Nobody wanted to believe then, and nobody wants to believe today. 
So friends, let's be honest with one another and God on this eve of Christmas. Because if we are honest about it, the living of our lives, you know, even on the best of days, it's actually an attempt to make the best of a bad job, isn't it? I know that all of that thus far doesn't sound very positive, but it's true. I know it doesn't sound very seasonable. You know, it's Christmas Eve. We're supposed to be full of Christmas joy. You know, we come in here, you know, hopefully, you know, get a bit of color in your dark lives. And, you know, you've just put a dampener on on it all, Billy. You just introduced a big cloud over the congregation. And, uh, you know, it's supposed to be, you know, a season of cheer. We're supposed to be decking the halls with boughs of holly. You know, it's the season to be jolly. Dawn, we now are gay of peril. Strike the harp and join the chorus. La 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 la. You know, gotta be happy. And then you get that Reformed Baptist preacher, and he just gives it as it is. It's all dark and gloomy and depressing. And uh, he's lost a plot. My friends, you see why? You see why this name, Prince of Peace, has such an appeal. You see, there's the bad news before the good news, just the way Paul does in Romans. Gives us all the bad news and then he brings in the good news. Yes, we look at the world and it is awful. Why is it awful? Because we live without the Prince of Peace. Because we live without the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who can bring color into the life and dispel the darkness. And who is this Prince of Peace? A Prince of Peace. Someone who is himself peace. Someone who has achieved peace. Someone whom in knowing him becomes our very peace in this troublesome world. Because our joy, he becomes our joy and he enables us to fully and to truly, you know, strike up the band and sing from the the heart, you know, strike the harp and join the chorus. And we sing more than just fa la 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 la. We sing the king has come. You know, he has entered our world and he has come to bring peace to troubled hearts. That's what we sing about. We have something sensible to sing about. We have something sensible to shout about. And if this peace that we are introduced to, if there is a peace that's eternal, and if that peace is found in this Messiah who was born at Bethlehem, this wonderful counsellor, How does it all work out? How does it translate into life? How do you get it from the page to the heart? How do you get it from a phrase, Prince of Peace, to the experience of peace within? Because that's what you need, and that's what I need, isn't it? That's what the folks out there need. They need peace within. And then when you have peace within, you have peace within a home, and you have peace within a nation. And you have peace within a world. 
because you want to go out and fulfill the great commission. And it goes beyond the world, doesn't it? You have peace within the universe. If God has come in the person of this prince, we ought to expect that what he has accomplished, that he has accomplished what he set out to do. And that's exactly what the Bible tells us, friends. And so to get a handle on this, I'm going to do what we did with the other names. I'm going to look at another portion of scripture in order to try and throw some light onto this. Now, we did it with Everlasting Father when we turned to Psalm 103. Uh, We did it with Mighty God when we pulled out various texts from uh, John's Gospel. And we did it with uh, Wonderful Counselor when we turned to Psalm 78, verses 9 through 16. So, that's why we read from Colossians 1 earlier. Okay, so hopefully you'll have Colossians 1 in front of you. And... Just breaking into the chapter, we read from 13 just to get the overall context, but just breaking into the chapter at verse uh, 15, you'll notice how Paul introduces us to Jesus and he begins verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, drop down to verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And the reason that this is so significant is because, verse 21, you... You who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. So let's start there and work back highlighting three words. First word, alienation. An alienation that touches our minds, our believing. And an alienation that is represented in our lives, our behaving. We behave wrongly because of our minds. Our minds are wrong, and so we behave wrongly. And the predicament that is before us is that we are alienated by our natural birth. We are alienated from God. Now, You're not going to find this anywhere else other than in the Bible. You won't find it addressed by anyone else or by any other religion. You get it addressed in the Bible because, um, well, for example, Buddhism. Buddhism will suggest to you that you just have to look within yourself and then you can try and find the answer in there somewhere. That's where you'll find the answer. And you find that that's what makes, I guess, Buddhism so appealing to the, you know, to the, the, the Hollywood stars and the folks with all the money uh, who are into Buddhism and things like that, many of them, because it blends in with their individualism. It blends in with the individualism of modern society. And the fact that I can just believe pretty well what I want to create for myself 
And it ends up meaning that I'm my own God and then I can do whatever I want to do. And you see, friends, whatever is served up on the smorsborg of answers, be it religious or secular, we have to say to ourselves, do any of these things, secular or religious, do any of these things, any of these offerings that are put to mankind, do they, do they seriously come close to knocking off the throne this amazing story of God becoming a man, dying for his enemies and praying for their forgiveness. That's the story of Christmas in a nutshell. God takes the initiative and he comes to us. The Prince of Peace dies for those who were opposed to him. And simultaneously, he prays for the forgiveness of his enemies. And the reason that this has validity is because of the fact of the alienation. Now, you can find alienation everywhere you turn. You know, contemporary music and poetry and the arts are full of it. Films absolutely packed solid with it. And that's why so many of them do appeal to us. You know, the fractured relationships, the sense of eternal dissonance, the sort of shadows of a God once known are all there. And we go and we watch those things or we read those things and it tugs at us and it pulls us and we wonder about it. And then we turn to the Bible. And the Bible says the reason that you know relational alienation, the reason that you experience psychological alienation, the reason you feel all messed up within yourself, all of those alienations are directly tied to Colossians 1.21. You are alienated from God and enemies in your mind. Enemies in your mind. Well, if we are enemies of God, if by our belief and by our behavior we turn our back on him, what hope is there for peace? Unless, of course, this God, from whom we are alienated, is the one who takes the initiative. And that's exactly the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, 1 through 7. Specifically, 6 and 7 of Isaiah 9. God takes on human flesh and provides for us the man who will represent all men. And bring peace. He comes to deal with our alienation by affecting, and here's our second word, reconciliation. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. All of what may be known of God, and John touched on this last Sunday morning, all of what may be known of God is made known to us, is manifest to us in Jesus. 
Want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. And it's through Jesus, the Messiah, that God reconciles all things to himself. In other words, as we know, there's been a barrier between God and man. And that barrier the Bible describes as our sin, whether that's passive or whether it's our open rebellion against him. All of the stuff that, you know, uh, goes on in our lives that we know uh, offends against a a holy and a righteous God because our conscience, you know, uh, uh, convicts us of that. At least it convicts us until we do it so many times that we flat out don't care and our conscience is sheared. And all of those offenses, all of those sins against a holy God, because he is just, because he is holy, he must, he has to punish sin. But because he is a loving God, and a merciful God, and a gracious God, He is the one who provides a solution in the midst of the execution of his judgments. And it's there that we find ourselves, it's here that we find ourselves at the apex of the uh, Christian claim. Because it's here that Paul is making sense of the phrase found in Isaiah, or from Isaiah chapter 9, that he is the Prince of Peace. In what sense? Well, he is the prince who by his sacrificial death atones for sin and takes upon himself the righteous response of God to sin. Not a burst of very anger, like, you know, our horrible approach to life when someone does something to us or steps on our toes and we fly off the handle. But no, it's the... When it comes to God, it's the settled indignation of the character of God to that which is opposed to him. Because he is just, he must deal with what is opposed to him. He must deal with sin. And here the Prince of Peace moves relentlessly towards the cross of Calvary. And at the cross he bears on his own body our sins. In a very realistic sense, we have to fasten on the fact that what is taking place on the cross is to use an old-fashioned biblical word, word, it's propitiation. That's what's taking place, that Christ bears the wrath of God. The wrath that we deserve, he takes upon himself and he propitiates, he turns away God's wrath. He didn't die as an example of self-sacrifice, he didn't die to give an example to follow, no. Why did he die? You just move on through the book of Isaiah, don't you, and come to chapter 53, and we've quoted it a few times in our course of this study. Isaiah 53, he is despised and rejected by men. He has borne our sorrows and carried our griefs. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. My friends, do you see what it's saying? The answer to all of my life and all of its fractures and all of its failures and all of its disappointments and all of its dirtiness and all of its ugliness, all of its unfulfilled hopes, and all of its unfulfilled dreams, may actually be traced to a moment in time on a hill outside Jerusalem, on a narrow strip of land at the point where three continents of the world intersect. The Christmas story of 21st century Britain that everybody wants to set aside and dismantle with all the Christmas lights and the happy holiday and all the shopping. It's not the story that we're introduced to in the Bible. So the real question, the essential question is, are you reconciled to God. And maybe you're saying, well, I know some somebody who does need to be reconciled to God. He's a real bad egg. But not myself. Yeah, I'm a church goer. A church goer all my life. I'm a decent person. Don't think it's for me. But I could tell you somebody it is for. You know, they're they're no good. They're always up to stuff that is so obviously wrong. It's not for me. You know, this, this gospel's for everybody. And so it is. Let's, let's be honest. Isn't it so strange that we're able to look with clear eyes that at all of the, all of the stuff that is so obviously wrong, you know, we're able to look at the world and say, yeah, all that violence is wrong. You know, all the broken down business, obviously it's all wrong. We watch it on TV, we read it in the newspapers, we get it through our news feeds, and we are prepared to acknowledge that the whole thing is just messed up. And yet, we can't somehow face up to the fact of the messiness and the untidiness and the plain ugliness and painfulness in our own lives. Everything is wrong with everybody else, but not me. But Jesus, you see, is a sufficient saviour. And that's what he's, Paul is telling us here, and that's what Isaiah was pointing us to. This saviour, this prince of peace, who is reconciling the world to himself. And on the cross, he has accomplished a reconciliation. And the issue for us is not achievement, but acceptance. Do you accept this? You see, as we head home for lunch, and the crowds, you know, they're out doing their shopping in Liverpool 1, and they're packing the, the trains and the buses or whatever. You know, our, 
immediate culture remains completely unaware of a reconciliation that has been achieved. That on the cross of Christ, the answer to all of our deep-seated angst has been provided. That in our alienation, the Prince of Peace has done a work of reconciliation, which leads to our final and our third word, transformation. A transformation not only of the individual, but a transformation of the whole universe. He will make all things new. Look what it says in verse 20. He reconciles to himself all things. What do you mean all things, Paul? Well, the one in whom all of God's fullness is found is the one who reconciles everything, whether things on earth or things in heaven or things under the earth, and he transforms the lot of it. In other words, Paul just points out the cosmic sweep of the reconciling, transforming work of Jesus Christ. Nothing in the universe lies outside the range of what Jesus has accomplished. Nothing and nobody lies outside the extent of God's reconciling, transforming work. He comes to make all things new. Let me finish in this way. When Adam sinned, Turned his back on God. A huge dislocation, to put it mildly. A huge dislocation took place that not only affected Adam and we, Adam and Eve, you know, and the kids. Affected everything. Man turns his back on God and dislocates his relationship with God, his relationship obviously with other people too. And he's out of kilter with, his, with creation. So does Christianity have anything to say to the predicaments of the human heart whereby people are lost and entrapped in their own psychological disorders and find themselves enveloped and worried by you know, all the things that are going on in the world at the minute from you know, climate change to escalating tensions in the Middle East, uh, Eastern Europe, East China Sea or whatever. Does Christianity have anything to say about this troubled world? Without question. Christianity has something to say. Christianity introduces us to the Prince of Peace. You see, by his coming, by his death, by his resurrection, by his ascension, we know that he's coming again. And as we focus our attention on the first coming, we should never forget, according to God's timetable, there's going to be a second coming. And Jesus Christ will make everything new. He will transform the whole shebang. The day is going to come when the accoutrements of war will be put away, as Isaiah says, they'll be totally absolute. When the diseases that rubbish our bodies will be no more. And God will make a new heaven and a new earth. And the structures of government within that new heaven and within that new earth will not be about man's power or man's leaning and his posturing. But it will be about the glory of almighty God. Why? How? 
because a child is born. And that child is the Prince of Peace. And if you would know peace, you must come to the Prince of Peace. And what a welcome you will receive. For he has taken the initiative in making a reconciliation. Which doesn't ask us to achieve, but simply to accept. And accepting, he begins a transforming work that he will carry through until the day when he makes everything new. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the Prince of Peace, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the hope that is proclaimed to a hopeless world, to a dark world, to a troubled world. Lord, we pray that through the preaching of the gospel, whether it's through the passing on of a tract, through conversation with friends, through meetings that are conducted, through open-air ministry, and people just passing by on the street, your word would take root in hearts and minds. And that people would be set free. Their lives would be transformed. And that we would see a change coming about in this nation akin to the change that came about in the 18th century. Through the great awakenings that you brought about in the Western world through an outpouring of your spirit. Lord, hear us, we beseech you. Because we pray in for we pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.